This is reaction. Movements, moments, and monsters of the reactionary right. Episode 8, Terror on Screen, Part 3, Trauma. left a lasting mark on the American psyche. In the months after the attack, there was this profound feeling of being unsafe. People were afraid of the obvious things, flying, major cities, tall and important buildings, but they were afraid of a lot of less obvious things too. Trains and buses, shopping malls, schools, everything felt like a potential target. I lived in Tampa, Florida at the time, and there was a real fear that the nearby MacDill Air Force Base could be attacked. Why terrorists would pick MacDill out of 50 other active bases in the country wasn't a question worth even asking. The point was that danger could be anywhere, lurking behind every corner. I think we spend a little too much time pathologizing society, as if the DSM-5 can be applied to millions of people in any useful way, But there is a comparison to be made between the post-9-11 mindset and the experience of post-traumatic stress. Things that used to be normal, even enjoyable, take on a sinister feeling. The mundane becomes terrifying. Everything startles and spooks you. And we internalized that in a big way after September 11th. Being fearful became part of being an American. Paranoia was patriotic. The popular slogan, If You See Something, Say Something, was born on September 12, 2001. A New York advertising executive named Alan Kay wanted to recreate the World War II loose lips sink ships propaganda, and he thought up the phrase against the backdrop of repeat footage of the towers collapsing. He wrote the idea down on a stray index card and kept it in his desk for months until the New York Metropolitan Transportation Authority needed a new safety slogan. Since then, The phrase has been adopted by lots of other entities, too, including the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, the TSA, Amtrak, and even major cities like Chicago and San Francisco. MTA trademarked the slogan in 2007, but it does allow other entities to use the phrase for free so long as they don't broaden the meaning beyond terrorism. A university that wanted to use it for a campaign to decrease dorm burglaries was denied the rights. And while the entire country, and even much of the world, was swept up in this wave of fear that followed 9-11, New York City was obviously uniquely traumatized. The hole left in Battery Park by the Twin Towers was like an open wound on the city. There have been dozens of film treatments of the attacks in the aftermath, but I'm going to focus on two that were especially popular. Rain Over Me and Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. They both had star-studded casts and really compelling human stories, and both protagonists were direct victims of the attack. People who had lost loved ones, struggling to adjust to a new world in which fear and grief dominate their lives. Rain Over Me was especially noteworthy for Adam Sandler's performance as Charlie Feynman, a dentist-turned-man-child after his wife, two daughters, and dog were all killed on United Airlines Flight 175 from Boston to L.A. Sandler's bread and butter has always been comedy, and Rain Over Me was one of his earlier forays into drama. His character is still funny at times, but mostly in a sort of tragic and pitiful way. His old college roommate Alan Johnson, played by Don Cheadle, tries to bring Charlie out of the fog of isolation and self-indulgence that he's been trapped in for the five years since the attack. 
Extremely loud and incredibly close also has a protagonist who's retreated into his own world. Nine-year-old Oscar Schell, whose father, played by Tom Hanks, was in a business meeting in the towers when the plane struck. Oscar, who is implied to be on the autism spectrum, has always had terrible anxiety, and it's gotten much worse since he lost his father. Oscar spends the year after the attacks hunting down the lost sixth borough of New York, a kind of immersive puzzle that his dad made up to satisfy Oscar's curiosity and his cleverness, while also getting him out into the world and talking with people, something Oscar struggles with. Here's the part where I warn you that this episode contains spoilers, so if you want to see these decade-old films without knowing the endings, I suggest you do so before listening to the rest of this episode. But they both have happy endings. I think audiences would have been pretty turned off if they didn't, like some promise unfulfilled, given how tragic the characters are. But the stories are, at their base, about suffering, and learning to live with that suffering. Not moving on, necessarily, but growing into the pain, honoring the memories of your loved ones by making a new life for yourself. In Rain Over Me, Charlie Feynman has fallen off the map since the loss of his family. Living on his generous survivor benefits and his wife's life insurance, he spends his days listening to music while cruising around the city on a motorized scooter, playing in a band, and gaming. Oh, and obsessively remodeling his kitchen over and over again. We learn towards the end of the film that his wife wanted to remodel their kitchen and he didn't have any interest in the project, and he was even kind of rude about it, which he now regrets. He carries around catalogs on kitchen design pulling them out and thumbing through the pages when he gets anxious or uncomfortable. Whenever he feels overwhelmed, Charlie puts on his headphones and listens to the same songs over and over again, including The Who's Love, Rain O'er Me, which lends the film its title. Charlie won't even acknowledge the attacks or the deaths of his family, and he throws tantrums whenever Alan tries to get him to talk about his past. He violently lashes out at Alan several times, but Alan patiently puts up with it. Charlie's tragic backstory lets him get away with things that no other adult would. And I don't want to stretch the metaphor too much, but to me it seems similar to the ways the United States could do no wrong after the trauma of 9-11. Anyway, Alan pities Charlie, but he also envies him a little bit. Alan's life is all obligations to family and work, and he sees the appeal of Charlie's extended adolescence. When Charlie takes him on a scooter ride, and the two are having a blast, and Alan tells him, I don't do anything like that. The escapism Alan gets to experience with Charlie is another running theme through the movie. Eventually, with the help of a therapist, played by Liv Tyler, Alan gets Charlie to open up about his loss. It's a really compelling scene. Charlie tells Alan all about the happiest memories he has with his wife and his daughters, and then he starts to describe the events leading up to 9-11. Charlie was in a cab on the way to the airport, about to catch a flight to meet up with his family in L.A., when he hears a radio report about the attacks. Inside the airport, Charlie finds out that his wife, daughters, and dog were all on one of the hijacked planes, and he watches the towers collapse on a television. He tells Alan, I saw it. I saw it, and I felt it at the same time. I felt them burning. That night, Charlie gets drunk roots through his apartment until he finds a handgun, and goes out into the night to attempt suicide by cop. He's arrested and hospitalized for mental illness, but the police won't charge him because he's a 9-11 widower, which would be bad press for the NYPD. 
They don't seem to care much about bad press these days, but hey, it's a fictional story. Charlie then faces a court hearing to decide if he should be put in inpatient treatment for a year. The judge gives the decision over to Charlie's estranged in-laws, who take his isolation personally. They think he's forgotten their daughter and grandchildren. But no, he tells them, it's not that he's forgotten them. He explains, I don't need to talk about it or look at pictures, because the truth is, a lot of times I see her on the street. I walk down the street, I see her in somebody else's face. Clearer than any of the pictures you carry with you. I get that you're in pain, but you got each other. You got each other. And I'm the one who's got to see her and the girls all the time, everywhere I go. I even see the dog. That's how fucked up I still am. I look at a German shepherd and I see her goddamn poodle. The same is true for Extremely Loud's protagonist, Oscar. The boy is fixated on the game his father designed for him, but he's also obsessed with the desperate messages his father left on their answering machine as the towers caught fire, messages that he's hidden from his mother to spare her the pain. He's also haunted by hazy visions of the iconic Falling Man, one of the 9-11 jumpers who plummeted to their deaths, trying to escape the smoke and flames in the towers. Oscar is even zoomed in on a photo of one of the jumpers, trying to find out if it was his father. Unlike on CSI, the picture can't be brought into sharp enough relief to tell if it's him. The jumpers were a really compelling image from the attacks, played over and over again on screens in the weeks and months that followed. They gave people a sense of how incredible the suffering was inside the burning towers. They made you ask yourself, how could somebody jump from the 140th floor of a building and they made you confront the only answer. Anything is better than burning alive. A running theme in Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close is Oscar's feeling that, as time passes, his father is slipping away from him. He keeps a hidden shrine to his dad in a cabinet in his bedroom, along with the answering machine and a few trinkets, as well as all of the information and clues needed to solve the game and find the lost sixth burrow. He has a sort of frenzied feeling about the adventure. Oscar narrates, If the sun were to explode, you wouldn't even know for eight minutes, because that's how long it takes for light to travel to us. For eight minutes, the world would still be bright, and it would still feel warm. It was a year since my dad died, and I could feel my eight minutes with him were running out. Through Oscar's journey to solve the puzzle of the lost sixth burrow, he has to face his fears— not just talking to strangers, but also coping with the sights and sounds of New York City. In one scene, Oscar is explaining why he walks everywhere. He's afraid of public transit. In fact, he's afraid of most everything. The film flashes back to an afternoon with his dad, who is trying to coax him onto a swing set. Oscar insists that it isn't safe, but his father tells him that it's fun and that some things are worth the risk. Oscar still refuses. In another scene, the screen flashes with images of everyday city life as Oscar's voice becomes more and more desperate and the music becomes feverish. Oscar names all the things he fears. Old people, running people, airplanes, tall things, things you can get stuck in, loud things, screaming, crying, people with bad teeth, bags without owners, shoes without owners, children without parents, ringing things, smoking things, people eating meat, people looking up, towers, tunnels, speeding things, loud things, things with lights, things with wings. But Oscar has to overcome these fears to complete his mission. 
He teams up with an old man, who turns out to be his estranged grandfather, to find the lost burrow. But he can't walk the long distances and convinces Oscar to take the train. So add a check to old people, loud things, and things you can get stuck in. And through his contacts with the people of New York, the shared pain and trauma of not just 9-11, but of the experience of being human is painted in vivid relief. Unlike Rain Over Me's Charlie Feynman, Oscar is eager to tell people that his father died in the towers. And it's not to score points or manipulate people into helping him. It's a simple statement of fact that explains why he's talking to them. But Oscar's no-nonsense approach to the puzzle is just cover for the intense pain he's feeling, which is written on his very body. He pinches himself to the point of creating angry red welts all over his side. His mother has never really recovered from the loss, and at one point in the film, Oscar confronts her about her failings as a parent. You're what they call in the law in absentia, an absent parent. The two are shouting at each other, and Oscar is furious that they had a sham funeral for his father with an empty coffin. His mother, played by Sandra Bullock, fires back, I don't know why a man flew a plane into a building. I don't know why my husband is dead. But no matter how you try, Oscar, it's never going to make sense because it doesn't. It doesn't make sense. I wish it were you in the building instead of him, he tells her. So do I, she replies. Looking ashamed, the boy says, I didn't really mean that. But his mother, sweet and tender now, replies, Yes, you did. While Rain Over Me only makes vague references to 9-11, Extremely Loud makes it the centerpiece of the narrative. The opening scene in Extremely Loud is Tom Hanks in a suit, falling against a clear blue sky, surrounded by pieces of paper floating through the air. Young Oscar refers to it as the worst day, like a proper noun, and is constantly describing his memories and his feelings, constantly telling people that his father died in the towers. Charlie, on the other hand, pretends to not even remember the events or his family and the only references to the attack are people speaking in hushed tones about his loss. But the fact is, said or unsaid, the lives of both protagonists revolve entirely around their loss, and both are obsessed with escapism, Charlie with his music and catalogs and video game, Oscar with the puzzle his father left for him, which, by the way, turns out to be a wild goose chase. Oscar finds a key that he's convinced is central to the puzzle, but it turns out to be a random, unrelated key. And both characters also lash out at the people who love them most. This push and pull, talk about it, don't talk about it, leave me alone, but don't leave me, is central to the trauma frame. But it's also indicative of this larger media environment that 9-11 left in its wake. The event was one of the most intensely mediated in history. Images of the planes and the towers were nonstop for months after 9-11, and every year on the anniversary we get new tributes, documentaries, and even advertisements. But we also sought escape. Distractions that were no less indulgent or pointless than Charlie's kitchen countertops or Oscar's key. Family-friendly movies and TV dominated entertainment. The media was barred from showing the flag-draped coffins of dead military service members returning from war. And President Bush told us that the most American thing we could do was go shopping and visit Disney World. 
This confusion lingers on even today, I think. In the years just after 9-11, the war on terror was popular. Anti-war sentiments were considered traitorous. The evidence that supported the wars could not be questioned. Twenty years later, most Americans, not all, but most, acknowledge that we were hoodwinked into thinking Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Many of us accept that our interventions in Iraq and Afghanistan had nothing to do with the 9-11 hijackers, who were mostly Saudi Arabians, a nation that was and continues to be an ally of the United States. The Patriot Act, which was signed into law just 45 days after 9-11, has always been controversial among Americans. There is still little consensus on our response to 9-11, except, perhaps, that it's been a big, tangled mess. Just two months after 9-11, a man named Richard Reed boarded a flight from Paris to Miami wearing shoes packed with plastic explosive. Shortly after meal service, passengers noticed a sulfur smell coming from Reed's area, and a flight attendant found him with a lit match and a shoe in his lap. Passengers restrained Reed, and the bombing failed, but it was largely due to luck. The flight had been delayed, and then it had rained, so the fuse on Reed's explosive shoe was too damp to light. As far as I can tell, there hasn't been another shoe-related bombing plot since, but to this day, we still take off our shoes at the airport. And according to some experts, the shoe policy, and other time-consuming security checks, may actually increase the danger of a terrorist attack, as long wait times make checkpoints a potential target. Just before Charlie tries to commit suicide by cop, he's in a shop where he sees a news report of a possible terror threat in New York City. His eyes dart away from the television. He goes home and gets drunk. This has largely been our lives for the last two decades. A sort of low hum of background noise that we're not quite safe, that we never will be. An elaborate security theater of 3.4-ounce bottles of shampoo, a no-fly list that flags children under the age of five as potential terrorists, and color-coded designations of safety are all designed to convince us that someone is in charge, that they know what they're doing. But a ton of evidence suggests that most of the terror plots foiled by federal investigators wouldn't have existed at all without entrapment tactics. Agents regularly find disaffected young people with budding radical politics and convince them that bombing an urban center would be a great idea. If an exterminator brought a pocket full of termites into your home and then charged you for the convenience of killing them, you'd hardly be grateful. All of this amounts to about as much as Charlie's video game or Oscar's puzzle, a thin veneer of escapism that distracts us from the underlying causes of terrorism, a band-aid on a bullet wound. The conditions that lead to radicalization, poverty, political disenfranchisement, imperialism, are often made worse by the very tactics the federal government uses to supposedly combat terrorist activities. I don't want to gloss over the economic forces that are at play here, The military-industrial complex and the constant pursuit of cheap resources are hugely responsible for U.S. foreign policy all around the world. But these often nonsensical reactions are also part and parcel of the trauma frame. When something as horrific as 9-11 plays out over and over again on our screens, when we get these tragic stories of families that are destroyed and traumatized forever, we'll accept just about any forceful response as good and necessary, or at the very least tolerable. Not ideal, but better than nothing. Even when they violate our rights. Even when they don't truly make us any safer.
Both Rain Over Me and Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close have reasonably happy endings. Charlie has started working through the loss of his family, and a budding romantic relationship with a woman is implied. He's still playing video games, but he's doing it in a new apartment with a perfectly fine kitchen that needs no remodeling, and in the company of people who care for him. Oscar has faced his fears and returned to the swing set his father tried to get him to play on, only to make a fantastic discovery. The lost sixth borough was there all along, and he's finally made his father proud, swinging higher and higher against a clear blue sky, this time without the falling man and fluttering papers. The lesson is that we must face our fears and look inside ourselves even when it hurts, even when we have to admit our own faults and weaknesses. We have to forgive ourselves and each other and honestly account for our actions. But it's not clear that the traumatized American body politic will ever learn these lessons. There has been no significant acknowledgement of the role American foreign policy has played in creating the very terrorist groups we purport to fight today. The fact that after 20 years and billions of dollars, Taliban and ISIS forces still control territories in the Middle East and parts of Africa, and U.S. troops are still engaged there, is difficult to reckon with. How long has the complete withdrawal of U.S. troops been just around the corner? How many leaders have we taken out only to have another one take his place, a never-ending, expensive, and bloody game of whack-a-mole? Even today, it's considered fringe to acknowledge the role that Western imperialism has played in the growth of militant movements. And it's offensive for the same reason that the trauma frame still holds our imagination. It's victim-blaming, hawkish supporters of these illegal wars tell us. How dare you blame innocent Americans for the actions of monsters half a world away? As George Bush told the press in a Rose Garden address in 2006, it's unacceptable to think there's any kind of comparison between the behavior of the United States of America and the actions of Islamic extremists who kill innocent women and children to achieve an objective. Because, of course, the U.S. would never kill innocent women and children to achieve an objective. Certainly not, for instance, bombing a wedding party or a religious gathering or a hospital. Oscar's mother insists to him, I don't know why a man flew a plane into a building. I don't know why my husband is dead. But the rest of us don't have that excuse. Osama bin Laden literally wrote a letter to America explaining the motivations for the attack. Atrocities committed against Muslims in Somalia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Lebanon, Chechnya and India. Brutal, deadly sanctions against Iraq and the presence of U.S. troops in Saudi Arabia. Charlie's mother-in-law recalls how she planned to spend her golden years before the death of her daughter. I was going to do nothing but travel and spoil my granddaughters. Then those monsters flew over here from across the world. In the American imagination, Iraq and Iran and Afghanistan and Syria and on and on, those lands are a whole world away. What could we possibly have to do with them? Why would they want to target us? But these are not mysteries that we have yet to solve. For people living in territories whose foreign and domestic policies are dictated to them by Western nations, whose leaders are often hand-picked by us, and whose bases are crowded with Western troops, for them, America is not a world away. America is in their backyard, and they would like us to please pack up our toys and go back home. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reaction. 
If you like the show, please rate and review it, and consider supporting my work by visiting patreon.com slash reactionpodcast. There you can find all the episode scripts, as well as bonus audio content that supplements the main episodes. Follow the show on Twitter at Reaction Podcast for episode updates and commentary on current events. Send your questions or feedback to reactionpod at gmail.com. This show is produced by me, Brittany Gill. Until next time. <laughs>